6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 54 through 59. Isaiah chapter 54, I believe, is where we are. Last time we met, Isaiah 53 was the place we left off. Now we're going to move into a series of chapters, some of which are quite short. And between chapter 54 and about 60, we'll, we'll sort of sweep through. There are a few cryptic things that would be kind of fun, but most of it is exhort- a fairly straightforward exhortation. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou who didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou who didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. I have no idea what that means. Now, Schofield and others will have notes in your study Bible pointing out that Israel is the restored wife of Jehovah. Hey, we've been through that. We've been through, we've been through Hosea together. We understand the idiom that Israel is sometimes spoken of as the adulteress, sometimes widowed, sometimes divorced. Those are idioms used of describing Israel's relationship to Yahweh or Jehovah, if you like. So that's familiar. And that's what some of the study Bibles have footnoted here, except read it carefully. Sing, O barren, thou who didst not bear. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, we know who the woman, the woman there is with a man-child, right? And, we, and, and that, that identity of the woman in Revelation 12 is facilitated for us by none other than Jacob himself in Genesis 37 or 38, wherever it is that Joseph has his dream, huh? The woman with the twelve, you know, the zodiac type of symbolism in Revelation 12. Well, it's not that. That clearly is not the church because she's pregnant, as Chuck so colorfully loves to point out. You know, if that if that if the woman in Revelation 12 is the church, she's in big trouble because she's pregnant. She's about to have a man child. So it's not the church, as some commentators try to conjecture. It obviously is Israel, but Israel in a very special sense. Israel in the sense that she started with Eve. It's the royal line, the messianic line. But the point is. This is one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, Thou who didst not travail with child. See, I don't believe that's Israel, despite what your study Bibles may annotate. And I think that's kind of interesting. You can figure out yourself who you might think this person is, or who the idiom is alluding to. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. See, I'm one of these weirdos, and I can't find any commentators that agree with me, but I'm one of these weirdos. I think that's the church. The church did not bear. She's the virgin bride of Christ, right? The one that bore, idiomatically speaking, is Israel. This is the one who did not bear. Cry aloud, thou who did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. Ooh, that's interesting. You follow? Kind of exciting. Friend of mine who will go nameless so I don't embarrass him called my attention to something interesting today. He asked me when I get to Israel to check on what the population, the Jewish population of the planet Earth is. 
because the conjecture is it's something a little over 14 million. You say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, there's also apparently some statistical basis to believe that about 1% of them are Messianic Jews that believe in Jesus Christ, in other words. How many would that be? What's 1% of 14 and a half million? 144,000. Isn't that interesting? What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> if you don't know what we're laughing at, you've got to do your homework on Revelation chapter 7. Well, we'll move on to other things. <laughs> See, Doug, I didn't want to mention your name. That might embarrass you. <laughs> okay, verse 2. Enlarge thy, the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations and make desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. For thy maker is thine husband." The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. You may have noticed Isaiah is really shifting gears here. You see, he's no longer just focusing on Israel or Jerusalem and so forth. You notice the scope here has been very, very broad. Yes, in fact, the married wife of Jehovah is alluded to here. And yes, thy maker is thine husband. Fine. But notice the, idiom, the idioms he's using. The Lord of hosts is his name, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. But more than that, the God of the whole earth. Those phrases are not that common in the Old Testament. They do occur. Nebuchadnezzar used it of the God of Daniel and so forth. The, the most high God and, and broad terms. But this is, this is one of those places that, that, you know, the more you know your Old Testament, the more it catches your ear here to notice this. And there are some plurals here. It's Elohim and so forth, but we'll move on. Verse 6. The Lord hath called thee like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. God has set aside Israel for what he would call a brief period. Now, if you're Jewish, you'd figure it's not so brief. It's been 19 centuries. <laughs> but the point is, from God's point of view, yes, he set Israel aside. Jesus announced that in Luke 19, when they failed to recognize his presentation of himself as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. The fulfillment of the very prophecy that Daniel had given him, had been given by Gabriel. A milestone 173,880 days earlier, almost five centuries earlier, was the trigger point that was to predict the exact number of days upon which Jesus was to present himself as the Messiah, the King. And he fulfilled it to the very day we now discover. And in fact, he held him accountable to know that. Because you did not recognize this thy day, he says. This is all in Luke 19, if you want to review it sometime. Point is, he said, now these are hidden from thy sight. How long are they hidden, we ask ourselves. Paul answers the question in Romans 11.25. Israel is blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. But the main point is God is not through with Israel. He's once again going to deal with Israel. He says so all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. And it amazes me to discover the Reconstructionists and others hammering away today within the body of Christ this idea that Israel is over, that the promises of Israel are devolved upon the church. Wrong. Heresy. Jesus calls it heresy. 
in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. As tributes it to the synagogue of Satan. God is not through with Israel yet. In fact, he's going to deal with the world primarily through Israel once the church is out of here. That's their role. That's their destiny. And they will fulfill that which God originally called them to, to be that witness. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. That verse alone, among thousands of others, totally rebuts the Reconstructionist doctrine. But it's interesting that there is a gap in God's reckoning of time as far as Israel is concerned. And this alludes to that gap. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great riches I will gather thee. It's a gap. The gap shows up. In Isaiah 61, we'll deal with it when we get there, when the very verses that Jesus Christ read from Isaiah when he declared his mandate, opening his ministry in Nazareth, synagogue of Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4. We'll deal with that when we get there. The gap is there. The gap is in Daniel 9, between verses 25 and 27. Verse 26 describes a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 69 weeks being contiguous, but there's a gap before the 70th week. Because indeed, God's reckoning of time, as far as Israel is concerned, is set aside for a space of time. That space of time is almost over. How do we know that? By all kinds of things on the horizon. Every prophecy having to do with Israel, Jerusalem, the temple, Babylon, Magog, Russia, Europe, are all being positioned to fulfill that detailed scenario that God has laid out. The gap is about over. The church period that we've taken for granted for 19 centuries is about to be wrapped up. It's not going to be business as usual. The world will think so, buying, selling, marrying, what have you, like the days of Noah, but they're in for a big surprise. And that may happen at any moment. And the more you study prophecy, the more you can begin to realize that it's, whether it's next week or next year or even five or ten years, it's not a long time away. It's happening. This gap. This gap occurs. I actually made a list of these gaps where these occur in the Scripture. And they're, interestingly enough, there's 24 of them. And if you're mystical in terms of the 24 elders in Revelation 4, that number 24 is intriguing because that unique number points to a group that are kings and priests. The priests in Israel were Levites. The kings in Israel were from the tribe of Judah. Kings and priests were separate in Israel. There are three exceptions to that. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is a peculiar person in history because he uniquely was a king and a priest. And he, even that would disappear into obscurity if it wasn't for Psalm 110 and more importantly the epistle to Hebrews, which makes a big thing of the fact that Jesus Christ is a king and a priest, not after Aaron or Judah, but rather after the order of Melchizedek. So it's Melchizedek and Jesus Christ and who else? The church. Peter mentions it in his epistles, that we are a royal priesthood. That's actually a, an oxymoron in the Levitical mind. That is a self-contradictory phrase. You can't be royal and a priesthood. You could be one or the other, but not both. Aha. Exception. That's if you're in Jesus Christ. If you abide in him and he abides in you, then you inherit that role of being a king and a priest, as these 24 elders are so portrayed in Revelation 4 and 5. Not free of controversy, but a provocative thing for you to consider and do your own study on, come to your own conclusions. In any case, this gap is about over where God at once again is going to deal with Israel. One of the events that's included, doesn't necessarily precede, but is included in his dealings with Israel is when he turns his hand once again on their welfare so dramatically as to shock them into awareness that it is him putting his hand on them. 
And that event is his intervention when Magog and its allies invade Israel. And the more you know about the situation in the Middle East today, the more you realize that's about to happen. And so that's kind of exciting, because if we understand it right, setting aside the precise timing of the battle vis-a-vis -vis the 70 weeks, it, hey, it's close, <laughs> and it is preceded by, guess what? The mother of all tours, huh? <laughs> for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great riches I will gather thee. In, in a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Boy, this sounds like it's written for the Reconstructions to pay some attention to. For this is like the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with thee, nor rebuke thee. It fascinates me that he uses the illusion of Noah, which is long before Moses. You don't think of Noah as being Jewish, right? He was, of course. <laughs> How do I know that Noah was Jewish? He couldn't be Jewish. He lived long before Abraham. No. God told him to put some animals in the ark. How many of each kind? Two of every animal except seven of the Clean. What do you mean clean? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The clean and unclean are Levitical definitions. Noah knew about the book of Leviticus? No, but he did he understand Levitical law? Yes. God deals with him in those ter that terminology. Interesting. But more to the point here, what I really intrigued with verse 9 is, I won't mention names, but there's some very prominent writers in the Christian apologetics who I respect highly and love their work, except they have some weird ideas. One of them is, one of them runs around teaching that Noah's flood was local. Wrong. Noah's flood was global. Now you can tell that by doing a little geological homework, but aside from that, the scripture says so. How does it say so? Noah was given a rainbow, remember? Remember the story? Genesis 7 or 8, wherever it is, right? Or 9? Yeah. The rainbow, right? What was the rainbow to confirm? A promise. What was the promise? That I'll never do that again, right? Gave him a rainbow. If Loah's flood was a local flood, God didn't keep his promise because there have been lots of local floods. See? If God, does God keep his promises? I think so. Huh? Well, that was the promise to Noah that he was going to keep, that he wouldn't do whatever it was again. So whatever happened in Noah's flood was unique. It was a global flood. And by the way, it says so right here, you see. It says, very simply, the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with thee. Anyway, moving on. One, one small point that I, I like to suggest. When you talk Israel in the theological sense, I'm not talking about the ethnic sense, or the national sense, because in that sense we view Israel starting with Abraham, or in some sense would say the nation started from the exodus of Egypt. I understand that. But in a messianic sense, Israel as the, the channel through which God fulfilled his word. Truth is defined as when the word, the deed became one. His word was that he'd present a deliverer, a redeemer. Truth was when that was incarnate, huh? The word and the deed became one. But the point is, that promise did not start with Abraham or Moses or Joseph. It started with Adam and Eve. So in that sense, if you mentally can accommodate the notion that the messianic line, or in that sense, Israel started with the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, it'll help you understand Revelation 12. 
but we'll move on. Verse 10. For the mountain shall depart and the hill shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, who hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with antimony, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. Now I know what your Bible says, with fair colors. The Hebrew actually says with antimony, and that doesn't help either. What it really means is eyeshadow. See, antimony was used for eyeshadow, and they, they, you know, you thought that was new stuff. No, no, they did that way back then. And it, it, the intent was to present a setting for the eye. That was the concept behind eyeshadow, right, girls? Right? And so that's really what it's saying here. Behold, I will lay thy stones, that is, you know, with eyeshadow, and put them in good settings, and lay, lay thy foundations with sapphires. And... Um, so, for whatever that's worth. And you can study from here if you want to springboard and study stones. You'll discover these stones are used in Revelation 21, but also echoes, apparently, the breastplate stones. Both are, have 12 each, uh, uh, breastplate stones of, of Exodus and so on. But um, that's another study. I'll let you just run with that one on your own. And verse 12, And I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from anxiety. The word to King James is oppression, but the word really means anxiety. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the water to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. Well, there's a lot in that sweep. Obviously, a lot of it's alluding to the kingdom time in terms of Israel, but there's a lot of interesting doctrines here. Their righteousness is from me. That's not a New Testament idea or some fabrication of Paul. That's from the beginning to the end. God arranging situations so that he has justification in imputing his righteousness to us. How? By having Jesus Christ paying our bills. All that doctrine is buried behind this language if you want to dig it out. You see? This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. So you and I never pray for justice. We don't want justice. God may require it. We don't want it. What we want is mercy. Justice was be giving us what we deserve. We want it. No, 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 thank you. We want mercy. And he can impute it to us and still not violate his righteousness. See, we don't want to have a basis of leniency. We want a basis of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His, not ours. That's what Christ is all about. That's what the cross is all about. Chapter 55. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Come to the waters, and he that hath no money, come, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. I'll forego any cracks about that part of it. Spend money. It actually says weigh silver. Weigh silver. There's an overtone of that, by the way. It's Levitical. Weigh silver means to spend money, but it also implies 
silver is Levitically the symbol of what? Blood. You got it. Right. And if you study that, it's an interesting, it's an interesting study in its own right. I won't repeat it now. But the tabernacle rested on the sockets of silver. It rested on blood. The tabernacle spoke of Jesus Christ. Even Judas acknowledges when he threw the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor and said, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. If you do a, st a concordant study of silver, you'll find it Levitically is linked to the concept of blood. Now, it's interesting. How can you enjoy these things that are bought without price? Because they're made available to us by his death. Chapter 55 has to follow chapter 53 conceptually. Because chapter 53 provided the basis by which you and I can have these things available, namely by the death of Jesus Christ. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. It's interesting the contrast that's implied here. See, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? That is, in other words, that which does not satisfy. And isn't that what we do? All of us chasing left and right, spending our money on things that we'd hope would satisfy our appetites, but over every appetite, you know it won't end. Whatever it is, I don't care whether it's Ferraris or sex or alcohol or drugs or whatever. I'm not putting Ferraris in that guy. I mean, whatever it is that draws you, it somehow never finishes, does it? See, what, and, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. This almost echoes John 7, doesn't it? The living water. The only thing that does satisfy. How slow we are all to learn that. Yours truly included. I've spent, what, 30 years as an executive putting companies together and turning things around and making millions one time, losing it the next because I'm sort of a wild man. But the point is, done it all. I've done it all. Boats, cars, planes, you name it. I've been through it all. It's interesting. In this last year where I've been in a full-time ministry, I've worked harder, been more broke, and never been happier. <laughs> God is so great. No, I, no, no, I, I appreciate it. It, it fascinates me to look back, even on the grand adventures that God allowed me to have. And they've been fun. I can't kid you. They've been fun. But I look back, and it doesn't matter. You know, companies that are saved, that are now employment, great. But you discover no one really cares. And yet you share some scripture with someone that changes their life, and they come back to you 15 years later with tears running down their cheeks. You know? It's interesting what's real. And how slow we are to learn what's real. You know, I've, taught, I've taught the Bible for, I've studied for 40, taught for 20. And even these lessons, it took me, what, just the last couple of years to really get through my thick skull. Praise God. Anyway, verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander to the peoples. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. And indeed, the whole world will acknowledge the Lord, but also Israel will have that unique relationship with him. And that's what he's highlighting here. Interesting. It mentions the sure mercies of David. The word really implies promises of David. And the primary one is that the Messiah would come from his seed and that he would sit on David's throne. 
and it'd be an everlasting kingdom. See, there's some very unique promises. When you say the mercies of David or the promises of David, you and I cling, of course, to many promises of, the, of Jesus Christ as the Messiah or our Redeemer, our Savior. But what's illuminated here or focused on here are the unique relationships to Israel. You see, the promises to David are that the Messiah would be from his seed, eligible for his throne, and set up a kingdom forever. Not some kind of fuzzy, never-never-land thing, but a literal kingdom on the literal throne of David. And how, how we have a tough time really appreciating that. Verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Wait a minute, friends. That implies something rather serious. That implies he's not always findable. If you hear his voice, if he's calling you, if he's touching your life, you need to respond because he won't always do that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Circumstances can change that. Your attitude can change that. Your lack of openness to him can change that. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, Isaiah does this so often. Are those in juxtaposition or are those two people? You can argue both ways linguistically. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a typical Hebrew structure to put two things in the same thing, say it twice. Or, <laughs> maybe we've got two persons of the Trinity here. I'll let you take your pick. We'll move on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. How glibly we say that, and yet how <laughs> slow we are to really appreciate that. God doesn't do it the way we want it done, right? You notice that? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.